Good morning. It's me. It's not Father Preston. It's me, Jessica. Um, thank you so much to uh, Deacon Deborah for joining us this morning. We're so glad you're here. Um, I was thinking about how, like, Father Preston still has to put in so much work when he's gone. Like, we're so happy he gets to have a nice weekend away with his family. But um, you know, it's like when you're when you're a teacher and you have to like have a planned absence. It's almost more work to just get everything together and make your sub plans and everything. Um, and so he is always on top of that and making sure everything happens and we're so thankful for that. And he even, um, he mentioned to me last week that he was jealous because the road to Emmaus is like his favorite thing to preach all year long. <laughs> and I, I have this lesson for third graders where I teach them about metaphors and similes using the uh, lyrics to Firework by Katy Perry. I would never let a sub do that. Like, that's my favorite thing. Um, so, yeah, sorry. Um, thankfully, he left me his, uh, his detailed notes, so I, I have some, some of Father Preston's um, ideas and spirit here with us. So, um, our first reading, before we get to the road to Emmaus, uh, is from Acts. We've continued the sermon that Peter's given, given um, that we heard last week. And Acts is kind of um, crazy because it's really the first time that the disciples are, are preaching this message. Like, or it's the first time it's, it's really widely preached. You know, we're, I've actually been reading through the book of Acts recently and like, I find myself getting bored sometimes. But then when I take a step back and think about it, like it's not boring because, I mean, it shouldn't be boring, because to them, I mean, it was this whole new thing. And in our world now, it just seems so ubiquitous that we hear, like, everyone kind of knows the deal with Jesus. And we turn on the TV and we can hear, like, preachers or we can see preaching on street corners and all that stuff. It's just everywhere. But in Acts, it was all super new. Um, and they are carrying the story of Jesus that they have all witnessed firsthand more widely to people around the area for the first time. So, and also last week, Preston pointed out that Peter, the one giving the sermon, just the total 180 he's done where, you know, he's the same Peter that just recently couldn't even admit to some girl at a campfire that he knew Jesus and he denied her, denied Jesus three times. And now he is preaching this gospel and the, the one bringing thousands to Christ, thousands of followers added, it says. So this is like the end of the sermon in Jerusalem on today's reading. And it's basically the invitation. So those of us, you know, growing up in church, remember the, the invitation part of the sermon. It's basically like the part at the end where you're supposed to respond to God and maybe... Um, there was like an altar call or something like that, the invitation or like the certain songs that your church always sings. Um, I remember my church growing up, we would sing, there were like three that were always the invitation songs, like Family of God or I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, stuff like that. Um, so Peter's given his end of sermon invitation. Um, and the response is, or the response that he is exhorting everyone to, is to repent and be baptized. Um, so I, I was a little bummed that there was no Old Testament scripture this week because I've really um, gotten to love the Old Testament 
over the last few years, but Peter is saying repent and be baptized to the children of Israel. It's the same message that's carried throughout the Old Testament, that they keep not living as the children of God. Ever since they've left Egypt, they haven't been living as the children of God. And it's, you know, you're headed in the wrong direction. So Peter is calling them to repent and turn into the opposite direction and follow God. N.T. Wright says about this that Israel has brought into a way of life which is directly, or has bought into a way of life which is directly opposite to what God wants. A way which ignores the plight of the poor, which embraces violence, which denies God's call to his people to become the light of the world. Jesus warned about the same embrace of violence in Luke 19. Um, and this is something like I, I didn't connect before, um, you know, having to look into these scriptures. But in Luke 19, he's speaking through tears and Jesus is saying that judgment is coming in the form and it will be in the form of enemies surrounding them like a siege because they didn't know the things which make for peace. And they didn't recognize Jesus when he was with them as the Prince of Peace. But then... Jesus took all that judgment and violence on himself. The only human to ever practice the way of peace perfectly took that judgment on himself. So Peter, in our Acts passage, is giving this invitation in light of all this. He says that, we can, he says that all we can do in response to this is to be rescued. We can't really force this to happen. We can't do anything of our own power. We can just trust in Jesus to rescue us. We can turn away from the violence of sin and trust in the Prince of Peace instead to carry us through these chaotic waters. Um, another thing I love about the Old Testament is that waters always represent chaos. And just like God brought the Israelites through the chaos of the uh, Red Sea in Exodus, he is calling those same children of Israel and calling us to repentance and safety and rescue from those waters of chaos. So N.T. Wright, again, on repentance says, but how do you steer towards Jesus? How does he catch you, stop you, and rescue you? Peter and the others are quite clear, and the message of the Christian gospel fans out from this point to all people and all times. You need to turn back. But the way to do that is to become part of the kingdom movement that is identified with Jesus. Part of the people who claim his life, death, and resurrection as the center and foundation of their own. You need, in other words, to be baptized, to join the company marked out with the sign of the new exodus, coming through the water to leave behind slavery and sin and to find the way to freedom and life, end quote. I think it's interesting also that Peter says here that they need to be saved from this perverse generation. Uh, it just makes me think of every generation believing that their generation is worse, like worse than the one before. Has every generation just believed this for all times? Like every adult griping about kids these days. Um, and you hear the sentiment now all over the place in our culture that everything is getting worse and worse and kids these days on their ticky-tacks or whatnot. <laughs> they don't know any respect. All that stuff that, I mean, every generation thinks this, right? That they're the most perverse generation coming up. Um, and, they, and people just appeal to these imagined good old days that people have, um, as if in the good old days, when I was a kid, there was no 
sinfulness or problem or violence. Of course, that's not true. Um, so I, d I don't know what Peter is specifically thinking about when he says this prefers generation, but I think we can, we can safely apply that idea to all generations of fallen people that need God's rescuing. Um, we, we always think our generation's unique, but it, it's really all of us. I think he was just saying that we all need rescued from the judgment of sinful consequences. The twist is that right before that, he uses generations in a very different way. And he says that every generation, you and your children, and for all who are far off, has the gift of forgiveness open to them. So every generation needs this rescuing from judgment, but every single generation has this gift open to them, even the kids these days. Peter today carries on this message by telling us how to live out our repentance. He begins with talk of fear. Uh, he's talking about fear of a God who impartially judges. And this is a, a tricky subject. Uh, I think it can be really difficult to change uh, a picture that we have in our minds of a God to be feared or what the idea of fearing God looks like. Uh, some people might think that, we, that God is always out to get us and just waiting around for, to strike us with lightning when we do something wrong. Just ideas like that can be invoked by the fear of God. Um, and I think of it more in the way Peter's talking about it. I think of it more as the way the world has been ordered by God. It's ordered in such a way that when we follow the way of sin and violence and selfishness, there are consequences that come from that. We won't flourish that way. We won't live in his will and what he has created and called us to. So judgment is just those consequences. Humans fear God by actually hoping in God and his ways and turning towards his ways instead, the way Jesus showed us. Scott McKnight says, this fear is neither dread nor anxiety. Rather, it is the healthy response of a human being before an altogether different kind of being, God, and is a sign of spiritual health and gratitude. Father Preston is always so good at reminding us of this idea that we live in a world of counterfeit narratives. The stories of our world or perverse generations or whatever you want to call them tell us all these things about ourselves that aren't true. They counter the story that God has told about us. These are things like consumerism and self-glorification, um, self-gratification, nationalism, even living and pursuing the idea of the American dream uh, with all these markers of success that come along with that. These are all narratives that we can buy into. If we find identity in those things, we will come up empty. The blood of Christ redeemed us from all those perishable traps. We have been bought and redeemed, is that idea that Peter's talking about. So we can repent by turning away from those ideas. We can do this because Christ already paid the price for us. He already made this possible. It's already free and open to us. He has already redeemed us. So why would we keep living in these counterfeit stories? So, what does it look like to live Christ's story for us instead? Peter says that we do this by living in sincere love. 
Self-giving love is the right story. I'm going to read uh, Father Preston's words here for this part because they were just so perfect. This is so critically important to remember in any conversations about holiness, living rightly, or Christian ethics in general. The central calling is to love because God is love. When reading calls to live in reverent fear, our greatest concern ought to be for our neighbor. Are we caring for our neighbor? Who are the outsiders? Am I loving them in the way that Christ has loved me? Of course, this is not a call to moralism. Rather, loving one another is a sign of relationship with God. This is who Christians are. Therefore, loving is what Christians do. End quote. So I've thought a lot about, about this contrast between fear and love lately. Um, in 1 Peter, they, they aren't really contra in contrast because fearing God, like I said, actually means loving each other. But when we live in fear of other things and in fear of each other, then love can't flourish. Violence does. We've seen this recently in the news of innocent young people being shot just because they turned their car into the wrong driveway or they knocked on the wrong door. And the response to that was fear. These stories are so heartbreaking to me because we know this isn't the way we are meant to live. We can't live in a state of being this afraid of one another all the time. It will literally destroy us. Lives are taken and the people that took them are also destroyed because their own humanity is lost in that act as well. All because we turn inward to our own fears and project them onto the people around us. We don't see them as humans anymore. Everyone is a potential enemy to be feared. And it's easy for me to say that, well, you know, I, I haven't done something like that. But I, I can dehumanize people. I can do small acts of taking away other people's humanity when I am mad at them or afraid of what they might do to me. It's the same thing. So I don't, I don't know how to fix this on a society level. Um, my kids have asked me a lot about it recently. We've had a lot of talks about this. Uh, my students have asked me about it because we've had to, just this week, had practice um, for what to do about a school shooter in our building. We've had to have discussions where, of course, they, it's a lot of, well, what if this happens? What if they do this? What if they do this? All these soul-crushing conversations with children are just very present in my life right now. And of course, I, I don't have any satisfying answers for a lot of those questions. But I truly have to believe that Jesus' story of love instead of fear is the answer and the best hope that we have. So as the church, our job is not to add to the fever pitch of fear and anger and grievance that leads to all this violence, that leads to these consequences that's crushing us. It's our job as the church is to point to the story of Jesus' perfect love. It's to live a life of love for each other as children of God and to live a life of love for our neighbors and love for every human being as the image of God. The fear of God should be fear of getting this part wrong, 
fear of what happens to us when we don't see God's beloved creation redeemed in Christ and every other human being we encounter. So many people have walked away from Jesus because we, the church, have failed to live this story. There are plenty of other reasons that people walk away from, from church or faith, and we all know people like that or have been those people. Um, but I like what Russell Moore says about it. He says that it's, it's not necessarily that people don't believe what Jesus taught. It's that they don't believe that the church actually believes what Jesus taught. We show them too many of these counterfeit narratives instead. So in Luke, in the gospel reading today, we find two disciples leaving Jerusalem. They're doing this. They're walking away. They think the story is over. They wanted to believe that Jesus was the one, the Messiah and the rescuer, but now he's dead. So hope seems lost. They were disciples when he was alive with them. They were fully bought in. They were following him. Now they are just disillusioned, confused, and leaving. It really is parallel to what so many of us who left the church for a time or know people who left the time, it's, it's that same feeling after it seemed like Jesus wasn't really who we thought he was. But it says that while they were processing all this loss, they're walking down the road, discussing it together, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. He just showed up and met them where they were. Even when they didn't recognize him at all, because they were dummies, just like we often are, uh, he's, he meets them exactly where they need him and where they are. So he also kind of plays dumb and acts like he doesn't know the reason for their heartbreak and disillusionment because he wants to listen to them and he wants to be with them in their pain and hear what that is, what that's like. So they're talking to him about all of that and then they say like, oh, yeah, by the way, these women, they said something crazy too, something about his body gone missing, Jesus, this guy that we thought was the Messiah. Um, they said his body's gone, so we don't know what that's about. But conversation, I just think it's such a funny like insertion that they're talking about Jesus to Jesus, and they're like, oh yeah, by the way, these women say something really that astounded us. But I, I, in my mind, it's like this funny moment where they're trying to get Jesus to agree with them that uh, women say crazy things sometimes. And Jesus is like, no, that's the point where he says, you guys are foolish. <laughs> like, that's his last straw. And he finally calls them the dummies, not the women that they didn't believe. Um, it just doesn't occur to them to believe in resurrection. So Jesus goes through all of it with them, and he explains himself all the way from Moses to the prophets. Um, it would be really great if we could hear more detail about exactly what Jesus was saying to them, but I imagine it took a while because the whole, the whole picture is that they're just being really dense. So Jesus is like, oh, finally, I'm just going to tell you dummies what, what's happening here. Um, so still, this is, this is the moment that he, he explains to them about himself, but he still doesn't tell them that he is that person. 
they still don't know it's actually Jesus explaining all this to them. So, they're still being really dense. Another really interesting moment happens after that. He acts as if he's going to keep walking on, but then they invite him to stay with them for the evening. He's met them where they are, listened to their pain. He's laid out the whole intellectual story with reasons and scriptures about why they are totally wrong about him. And he still lets them be the ones who invite him to stay. That's when he breaks bread with them. And that's the moment that he finally reveals himself to them. So after all that, they find him, their same Jesus, at the table. And they're, you know, they're, he's revealed to them. Their scales are off their eyes or whatever. They finally realize. And by the time they realize, he vanishes. He's gone. So their response to that is immediate repentance. They are walking on this road away from Jerusalem where everything happened with Jesus, where they thought the Messiah was there. And once they realize resurrection has happened and resurrection is real, they repent by returning to Jerusalem immediately. They literally change direction. Uh, and they go straight to be with the other disciples. So now all these other disciples have... I'd imagine, you know, we have all these other glimpses of Jesus and the ways he's appeared to them after the resurrection. So I imagine they're finally all coming together and telling these stories about these appearances and the way that he was finally recognized in the breaking of bread. <clears throat> so that's why we are not just a church of story and intellectual exercises. That's why any sermon that anyone gives up here is not the central event of our worship. It goes hand in hand with the table. Eucharist is where we meet Christ and he is sacramentally revealed to us in his body and blood. Learning that practice here with Sacrament Church has been so beautiful to me in my own faith journey. I just look forward every week to coming to the table with all of you because meeting Jesus is not just a personal and solitary time for each of us. It is a corporate thing that we do together as disciples, just like these disciples immediately had to return together and be with the other disciples who knew Jesus in the resurrection. So once they knew the resurrection was true, once we know that we have hope in the resurrection, we rush to be together at this table each week, remembering and participating in that resurrection. That's what it's about. It's beautiful that Christ chooses to join us here. Then, as a sacramental people, our hope is that we can live out Jesus' story and live as new creations, and people will see that in us. People will see Jesus in us. So all of our scriptures are today. Today are about the centrality of Christ in our rescue and our repentance. They all reveal Christ as our hope and suffering. He had to suffer just as his people have always suffered. And then we get to join in his resurrection, the hope that all things in creation will be resurrected and made right again. Amen. <laughs>